Today, I want to talk to you about a really important topic, depression. You know, the truth is, with everything that's going on in our world right now, between COVID and so much societal unrest and upheaval, a lot of us, you know, we have seen our lives alter. Uh, maybe we're feeling down right now, not ourselves. Some of us are having trouble sleeping at night. We're grieving losses. In short, we're depressed. And in the midst of this series, where is God in all of this? I thought it was really important for us to ask the question, where is God in the midst of all of this? All of this that's going on inside of me, in the midst of my depression, in the midst of the losses I'm feeling, in the midst of the confusing thoughts and conflicting emotions, where is God in that? And today I want to look at a story that talks about just that, about someone going through a deep valley experience of depression and how God responds to him. But as we get started, just bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Lord, I sincerely believe that you're already here with us, that Lord, you have been moving in this service, that you have been speaking through the words of worship and our time of gathering together and looking to you and praying to you and seeking you. And now God, we seek you in your word and we ask Lord that you will have complete freedom right now to speak what needs to be spoken to us so that, Lord, we might hear you, that we might find comfort, that we might find encouragement, that we might find hope. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was called to be the pastor of his church at the age of 23, and by the age of 30, he was addressing crowds of more than 5,000. His church was the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, which seated some 6,000 people. His sermons sold about 25,000 copies a week and were translated into over 20 different languages. Spurgeon's sermons alone fill up more than 63 books, which is roughly the equivalent in size to the Encyclopedia Britannica. It still stands as the largest collection of books by a single author, in the history of Christianity. But Spurgeon was also a man who struggled with major depression. His first really deep experience of depression happened at the age of 24, and he wrote this, my spirits were sunk so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. Some of you know that experience all too well. Arnold Dalimore wrote a biography on Spurgeon, and he said this about him, what he suffered in those times of darkness, we don't know. Even his desperate calling on God brought no relief. You know, it was in the writings of Spurgeon that I actually came across the title for today's message because he's the one who said, we carry our worst enemies within us. Listen to this letter he once wrote to his own congregation. The furnace still glows around me. Since I last preached to you, I've been brought very low. My flesh has been tortured with pain. My spirit has been prostrate with depression. I am as a potter's vessel, which is utterly broken, useless and laid aside. Nights of watching and days of weeping have been mine. Spurgeon was so plagued by depression that he rendered his resignation to his church 32 times in 39 years. At the age of 43, depression drove him from the pulpit for 11 of the 12 months of the year. 
But his church, his church was so incredibly supportive. They told Spurgeon, we would still rather have you as our pastor one month out of the year than any other pastor for 12. Now we understand so much more about depression today than we did in the days of Spurgeon. But still, it's widespread. It's a common illness that affects so many people and even pastors. In the news as of late, we've seen some pastors who were pretty well known, who in the depths of their despair, in the depths of their depression, they committed suicide. It has caused the body of Christ to become more aware of how prevalent depression actually is. The American Medical Association said depression has brought on more human suffering than any other single disease affecting mankind. It's been, com- it's been called the common cold of mental health. In fact, Dr. Keith Ablo said depression is as bad as cancer and as stealthy. Now, the likelihood that you and I will experience major depression in our life is about one in five. 20% of us will have a major depressive episode at some point. Dr. Archibald Hart is one of my favorite Christian authors. He happens to hold the distinction of holding two PhDs. He has a PhD in theology and a PhD in psychology. He wrote the book, Dark Clouds, Silver Linings, which in my opinion is one of the best books I've read on depression. But in that, he described depression in three ways. Number one, it's a symptom. In other words, as a symptom, it is a part of the body's warning system. Depression gets our attention to let us know that something is wrong, something is awry. It can mean that something is wrong physically, or it can mean that something is missing or something is lost. Second, he says depression is a reaction. It can be a response to significant losses in life. It can be about the loss of loved ones in death, uh, the loss of childhood innocence, the loss of security, closeness, or relationship, or even may be indicative of unresolved issues from the past. A third way art that Hart describes depression is it's a disease. Depression can be more than just a reaction to your present circumstances. In its more severe form, it may indicate a problem with brain chemistry. Now, sadness and blue moods are experienced by every single person that's ever lived. But some forms of depression actually are far more debilitating and long-lasting. Let me just say from the heart, if you're on medication for depression, thank God that we live in a time where we do understand depression now better than we ever have. And thank God there are medications that can help. By all means, keep taking it. If it's not working well, talk to your doctor about the dosage or even the medication you're on because they may need to adjust it or put you on a medication that might help you better manage and that your body responds better to. But don't resist taking something prescribed by a doctor that's intended to help you better manage life. There are also various levels of depression. The mildest forms are what keep us from functioning at full steam or feeling our best. Another form of depression or level of depression manifests itself in symptoms that might interfere with your ability to work or sleep or eat or enjoy other pleasurable activities. Still others are major, manic, or bipolar, and these involve more than just adjusting to your present circumstances or unresolved issues or not getting enough sleep. In a sense, people who suffer from this level of depression have seen their own bodies conspire against them. Now, I have family members and I have dear friends who love Jesus with all of their heart who suffer from the more severe form of depression. 
Most of them are on medication and will likely take it for the rest of their lives. The fact is their bodies don't work the way God intended and medicine helps to restore the chemistry levels of their body to a normal level, not so that they don't feel or process pain, not so that they are perpetually happy, but simply so that they might have the same resources other people have for dealing with life as it comes. Now, without a doubt, one of the single greatest examples of depression in the Bible, at least situational depression, is Elijah. In fact, he experienced such dark depression that he wanted to die. There are two incidents in his life that make this clear. 1 Kings 18, where Elijah is literally at the height of his success, is at the height of his success, and 1 Kings 19, where he's in the depths of despair. In chapter 18, he's on the mountaintop, both literally and figuratively. And in chapter 19, he is in the valley of despair. In 18, he's elated, and in 19, he's deflated. So let's begin with the mountaintop experience in 1 Kings 18. When we meet Elijah in 1 Kings 18, he has a message that he's been given for King Ahab. You see, Ahab was a king who led many of the people of God astray. What he had done is he had fused the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, with that of Baal, the God of the Canaanites. The term for that is syncretism, and God was not at all pleased with this. In an act of judgment, God withheld rain from the land for three years. Now, there's a very specific reason as to why this particular judgment, why God wasn't allowing it to rain, because the people believed that Baal, not Yahweh, was in charge of the weather. Here, listen to this from Mark Smith on the early history of God, Yahweh, and the other deities in ancient Israel. He said, the Phoenician Baal of Ahab and Jezebel was a storm god. So get this, rain is very important in an agricultural economy. And this judgment is intended to expose Baal for what he actually is, a no-account deity, that the god that Ahab worshipped was powerless. Because you see, it wasn't just Ahab who believed this lie. Ahab led the people of God into this belief system. So they too believed that Baal was the God of the weather. So in this context and with this contest, what is happening is God is proving either I control the rain and Elijah is my spokesperson or Baal controls the rain and Ahab and Jezebel are his spokesperson. So after declaring this judgment, Elijah disappears. The Israelites continue to pray to Baal, this heathen god of rain, but no rain falls. At the end of three years of drought, the prophet returns to a showdown on top of Mount Carmel. Carmel. This is one of the most famous incidents in all the Old Testament. Mount Carmel is literally a mountain top. Of course, it's a part of a mountain range about 12 miles long. At its highest peak, it ascends above 1,600 feet above the valley floor below. Now look at this. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So this is where Elijah begins. Did you notice the response of the people? They said nothing. In other words, their hearts are so hard and their eyes are so blind that even after three years of Drought, they cannot see that Baal is a nothing God. Elijah is so confident that Baal is a nothing God, he decides he's going to stack the, the, the deck, if you will, in favor of Baal. For example, the place. 
Mount Carmel was called the Vineyard of God because this place in particular mountain had long been associated with the worship of the Canaanites. In other words, this is enemy territory. It's Baal's house. It's his home turf. So what Elijah is doing is giving Baal home field advantage. Second concession Elijah makes, he says, you go first. You take as much time as you want to pray to Baal. The third and final concession was in the proof for which one was truly the God of the universe. The first to answer by fire from heaven would be declared the winner. Now, if you know anything at all about ancient history, you might know that Baal was always depicted in any type of artwork or engravement or statues as holding a thunderbolt in his hand. Lightning is supposed to be Baal's specialty. So when the terms of this contest are given, it's in Baal's backyard, take as long as you want, and ask him to answer with lightning, who wouldn't take that bet? This is going to be a piece of cake for Baal. So from morning till evening, the false prophets, they pray, and they even begin to cut themselves in an attempt to get Baal to answer their prayer. But after a day of praying and crying out loud, nothing has happened, so now it's Elijah's turn. Elijah, he takes the time, he builds an altar, he places a sacrifice on the altar, but get this, he has his attendants pour barrels of water on top of the sacrifice all over the wood, so much so it overflows the wood and into the trench encircling the sacrifice. He has the attendants do that this one, not just once, but three separate times. Of course, then he prays to God, a simple prayer. God answers from heaven with fire, totally consumes the sacrifice and every bit of water that had puddled around the area. Everyone knew who won. (laughs) Baal was a big phony. And the false prophets who were leading the people astray were put to death. This is an unparalleled display of power. And Elijah is confident now that the battle for the hearts and the minds of the people is over. The war is won and Yahweh is the undisputed champion. But once Jezebel learns of the defeat on top of Mount Carmel, here's what happens. Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now this reaction threw Elijah into a crisis, one of the biggest crises in his entire life. What had just happened? I mean, after three years of struggle, three years of famine, three years of hardship, God does a miracle to prove once and for all that he is God and Baal is nothing. God does something without parallel in the history of the world. Elijah sincerely thought that the battle was over and Ahab and Jezebel would finally concede defeat. But Ahab and Jezebel were still in power and they were not about to go quietly into that dark night. So Elijah cratered emotionally mentally, physically, and spiritually, he runs away. And that leads us to chapter 19, which is the Deep Valley experience. The Bible said, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Like Elijah, when people are afraid, they run. Listen to people in the grips of depression, and you'll often hear things like this. I just got to get out of here. I'm going to get away from this place and away from these people. And you say, but where are you going? I don't know, anywhere but here. Well, what are you going to do? anything but what I'm doing right now. So when the prophet of God heard Jezebel's message, he ran all the way to Beersheba. That's the southernmost city in Judah. Literally, Beersheba was the end of civilization. After Beersheba was nothing but desert. 
So he's getting as far away from the situation as humanly possible. There he left his servants. Perhaps he didn't intend to come back and get his servant, or maybe it was because he did not want this servant to see the condition he was actually in. Have you ever gotten so depressed that you didn't want anybody to see you the way you were? A person in that condition is highly vulnerable to a lot of things, but one of the biggest things is making rash decisions. Here's the thing to keep in mind. While you may be successful in removing yourself geographically from a problem, this kind of depression usually returns. Why? Because this type of circumstantial depression is not really tied or caused by circumstance as much as it is caused by a faulty response to circumstance. Moving to a new location, getting a new job, finding a new circle of friends may remove the circumstance, but it doesn't change the way you're responding to life. So Elijah, what happens is he begins to wrap himself up in self-pity. He begins to go through a, a very dark time, but he puts on these dark colored glasses. He sees no way out. And depression is like this. It, it takes on a life of its own. It's a cycle. In fact, I remember H. Norman Wright, a popular Christian psychologist, said, it's important to remember that once a person starts becoming depressed, they usually behave in ways that reinforce the depression. In fact, I once read a study by the American Medical Association that found that depressed people not only avoid favorable feedback, but many times they actively seek out negative feedback. In other words, we kind of put on these set of glasses where we begin to cherry pick the evidence around us. We see only those things that confirm the negativity that's already in our heart and our mind, and we ignore everything that suggests anything otherwise. Getting into a depressed state is not always something that we're sure why it happened, but we're often confident when we are in that place. And Elijah is not just in it right now, he's deep in it. Before we look at the symptoms of depression, let me just say, there were some early warning signs in Elijah's life that he was heading for a downtime. He's exhausted physically, he's drained spiritually, and he's confused mentally. What that tells me is we've got to learn how to read our own gauges because sometimes there are indicators in our life that we're heading toward a downtime. And if we get good at reading the signs of the approaching storm, we can be better prepared when the storm makes landfall. So let me walk you through some of the brief symptoms of depression that we see in the life of Elijah. The first one is when you're depressed, you'll tend to depreciate your worth. He said this, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. One of the first signs of depression is you begin to question your own value. Elijah's thinking, my life is so difficult, it's so burdensome, that I'd rather be dead than continue living the way I am. Putting yourself down, doubting your value and your worth are all warning lights that depression has reared its ugly head. Listen to something one of the other prophets, a prophet named Jeremiah once said, why was I ever born? For my life has been but trouble and sorrow and shame. And remember, these are not the only Bible characters who ever felt this way. Besides Elijah and Jeremiah, at one point in his life, Moses, Job, and Jonah all wanted to end their lives. But it's also not just Bible characters. Church history is filled with the biographies of some of God's best servants who suffered with depression. 
There's a guy named J.B. Phillips who wrote one of the Christian classics. It's called Your God is Too Small. I've read this book so many times, but you know, he suffered with lifelong depression. There's another guy, his name is John Bunyan. He wrote the, uh, the Christian classic Pilgrim's Progress, a book many of you have read. This is a man who suffered with lifelong depression, the father of the modern mission movement. His name's William Carey. One biographer said that he suffered from a sheer black depression. Martin Luther, who's the father of the Protestant Reformation, would suffer from depression so intense that he would isolate himself from people for days and his family members would go through the house and remove any objects with which he might do harm to himself. So when I hear someone say, you know, good Christians don't get depressed. My first thought is, I wonder what your definition of a good Christian is. Because in my book, these were some of God's best. They didn't lack faith. They, they weren't second-class Christians. They loved Jesus and accomplished more for the kingdom than, more, than, than you and I will ever do. But they still struggled with depression. Here's a second symptom we see in Elijah, a symptom of depression. You abdicate your dreams. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Elijah's saying, you know, my dreams of making a difference, of being a spokesperson for God are no good. I'm no better off than anyone who came before me. Elijah is so depressed, he's given up on his belief that he can make a difference. He's ready to chuck the dream that God put in his heart. He's abdicating his dream. A third sign we see in Elijah, a sign of depression is you underrate your work. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, but the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They have broken down your altar. In other words, Elijah is saying, all my work is in vain. I'm God's prophet. I'm trying to tell people to obey the covenant, to worship the Lord alone, but instead they've broken down your altars and none of them obey. When depression gets severe enough, we start thinking that we can't make a difference. We punch the clock, we put in our 40, but it doesn't really matter because we say nothing changes. A final characteristic of depression is you overstate your problems. He said, I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. Now, it's true, Elijah does have problems. When a crazy queen and an evil king are trying to kill you, you've got a problem. But notice I said we overstate our problems, not that we imagine them. Elijah says, I'm the only one left, and it's me against the world. Elijah gets to thinking that maybe everything's depending on him. And sometimes we get to feel the same way. I mean, listen. If the work of God depends exclusively on me and you, God's in a lot of trouble. And whenever I get this inflated sense of my own importance, I always think about this question. If all the preachers and all the garbage collectors all quit on the same day, which one would you miss first? Point made. Elijah claimed to be the only worshiper of God left, but God later told him there were more than 7,000 who had not bowed their knees to idols. In other words, Elijah, you do have some problems, but you're not the only one doing this. Depression has a way of making us overstate the case. Our problems get magnified. They seem bigger than they actually are. Now, that's distorted thinking. And Elijah's not the only one who does that. Our depressed self loves to lie. It's never going to get any better. No one cares about me. You're broken. You're unfixable. You're not trying hard enough. All lies. Your depressed self will lie to you. Jared Wilson wrote a book called Gospel Wakefulness. And he said in that book that you must defy your depressed self, which means we stop listening and we start talking. We learn to counter the lies with truth. I'm not alone. 
There is someone who cares about me, and the cross proves that. My future is not dim. The resurrection proves that. What's going on in my life right now is not a lack of character or commitment. You know, everybody talks to themselves. Everybody does. And for all of you who just said in your heart, not me, you just prove my point with your little independent spirit. Everyone talks to themselves, but few of us talk back to ourselves. We don't dispute our own inner dialogue. We have to learn to tell depression that its days are numbered. Because even if you battle depression until your final breath, it will one day be vanquished for all eternity. Because there is no problem in this life that has an eternity attached to it. God has said it so. So even if you never get over it, it will not be permanent. So what is God's prescription for depression? Well, number one, rest your body. We should never trivialize rest. We should never make people feel guilty for taking rest. We should never try to shame people who are trying to take care of themselves. Being spiritual people doesn't mean we spend every waking moment of the day in the Bible and praying. Sometimes being spiritual means eating supper and taking a nap. You know, I posted this advice from a therapist not long ago on Facebook. It's a really good analogy. Listen to this. It's important to remember that when you're depressed, you have, to per, you have to nurse yourself and be extra gentle toward yourself. Just like an athlete wouldn't break an ankle, then force himself to run on that ankle, they rest and heal and do not think, I'm a failed athlete. They think right now something isn't working, so I'll take care of myself until it does. Just like a broken bone, depression can change the way your daily life plays out, pushing, you to, pushing yourself too hard. Getting frustrated when you don't feel good is like trying to run on a broken ankle. You just need to take care of yourself. So a part of God's prescription to depression is to get rest, to take proper care of ourselves. Elijah had extended a great deal of energy. He was exhausted physically, spiritually, emotionally. And we read this, he lay down under a tree and he fell asleep. Overcoming begins with resting. So Elijah, he lays down, he takes a nap. And then an angel of God shows up, bakes him a cake and feeds it to him. Never apologize for doing what you need to do to take care of yourself. Now, I found it fascinating about the life of Elijah. When he's in the center of God's will, God feeds him with a raven and God feeds him with a widow. But now that he's running away, now that he's afraid, now that he's depressed, God sends an angel to minister to him. It would seem that God reserves his best blessings for the time we need them the most. When you look at how God deals with Elijah in his depression, you don't find a single hint of condemnation anywhere in this passage. Why? Because condemnation only enlarges a heavy burden in someone's heart and pushes them further into their depression and away from God. This is not the way God responds to us when we're hurting. Now, this idea of taking care of yourself is so vitally important. I mentioned in a message not long ago that after I had open heart surgery two years ago, that I went into a major and a very dark, prolonged depression. It lasted for months. Honestly, it was everything I could do to just keep showing up at work. I felt as empty as I ever have felt at any time in my life. In fact, the thought that just kept going through my mind is just, I wish I had died during the open heart surgery. I just was not in a good place at all. 
But what happened to me during that time is a lot of self-neglect, self-abandonment, and self-indulgence. I began eating a lot of things that I probably shouldn't have eaten at all, or if I had eaten, just occasionally and in moderation, especially sugary treats and soft drinks. In the name of being good to myself, I was indulging in those things when I was actually doing harm to myself. You see, once I started indulging my appetite for sweets, it became this self-perpetuating downward spiral. The more I would eat, the worse I would feel about myself. The more I would eat, just, you know, sugar in itself gives us a buzz. I mean, that's why we like it so much. It will, all of our neurotoxins, all of our neurons in our brain, they just light up when sugar hits it. And so we have this real pleasurable feeling. It's like a high. And in the name of taking care of myself, I was actually doing things that were not good for me. So a little over four months ago now, I got to thinking about something I'd read a long time ago. And it was a simple statement, but it stuck with me. If you begin to treat your body better, you'll like it more. So I decided to actually be good to myself by not eating sugar, by not eating to the point I made myself miserable, by putting my body in motion and exercising it and giving it what it needs, not what it wants. And even after years of neglect, and even after plunging into this dark pit and putting on some 50-some pounds, I lost 82 pounds. And I feel better, not just physically, but mentally and spiritually. Now, the problem I'm talking about today is one that most all of us face, especially when you're depressed, how to be good to yourself. What I've, under, what I've come to understand is being good to myself is first and foremost about giving myself what I need, not what I want. In the same way I abused food, some people who experience depression abuse alcohol. Again, the, the problem is giving your body what it wants or craves, not what it needs. You got to remember this. The search for highs may often begin as a flight from lows. Do you know that one in four people who've been diagnosed as depressed suffer also from a diagnosable substance abuse problem. Alcohol was often the way they self-medicated before they were diagnosed. Now, the initial effect of alcohol is this immediate sense of relief for depression because the initial effect is a high or a buzz. But ultimately, it only deepens depression because alcohol is a depressant. So let me just speak candidly for a minute. The combination of alcohol and depression can be lethal. Ask any of your friends in AA and they'll tell you how the two are often combined in a deadly result. And I can say from experience of all the funerals I've ever done, of all the suicide funerals I've ever done, the vast majority were men and women who were combining alcohol and antidepressants. It's just a lethal combination. So be careful what you do in the name of being good to yourself. Make sure that what is good for you is truly good and not just feels good, but is harmful. A second principle we find in Elijah's story is to cope with depression, you need to release your frustrations. In 1 Kings 19.10, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. You see, once Elijah arrives at Mount Horeb, he begins to pour out his heart to God. He says, you know, I've been zealous. In other words, God, I've been working hard for you, but look at what I got to show for it. I'm all alone. I'm frustrated. I'm ready to quit. 
Now, Elijah's story reminds us that all of us, all of us need an outlet for frustrations. Yes, even rational and irrational thoughts, they need to get talked out. And one of the best outlets for frustration is prayer. Holding our frustrations in is what makes us sick. Internalized frustrations build, and then they come out in unpredictable and sometimes uncontrollable ways. It's why I've always loved the quote by Dawson Troutman. Dawson Troutman was the founder of the, the Navigators. It's a Christian discipleship ministry. He said this, thoughts disentangle themselves as they pass through the lips and the fingertips. So what's he saying? He's saying we've got to get the stuff that's inside us outside. One of the best ways is through our lips to say it, to speak it out. The other is to write it out. Because if we don't speak it out or write it out, what we'll do is we'll end up taking it out, either on people that we love that don't deserve it, or more often when we're depressed, we take it out on ourselves. So we blow up, we clam up, we repress it, we try to control it, we stuff it down and ignore it. But we don't do what God encourages us to do, and that is to release it to him in prayer. God prompts Elijah three times in this passage to get it out, to, to, to speak until he's completely out of words. Never fear honesty with God. First, because God already knows what's in your heart. You're not fooling him by pasting on a, a, a fake smile or pretending to be in a place where you're not. Share with him what's in your heart. And the other reason for it is this. It's only when you get it out that the healing flows in. Releasing it is the key to healing. The third principle is this, refocus on God. God told Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Now the scripture says that after God speaks to Elijah to go out of the cave, to go stand on the mountainside, because God's going to pass by, the Bible says a great wind blew, then an earthquake shakes the mountain, and it's followed by fire. Now, I've mentioned this before, and I'll point it out again. It's called the rule of end stress. Basically, when you see a triplet of anything, whether it's in literature or in the Bible, pay attention to the third thing, because the third thing is typically the key to understanding the passage. Well, in this case, God gave Elijah three spectacular displays or visuals, wind, earthquake, and fire. Sounds like a 70s rock band, doesn't it? But what's significant about, the, what's significant about that third spectacular Phenomenon. What is significant about the fire? Well, just days before, God was in the fire. Remember, God answered with fire on the top of Mount Carmel. But is God in the fire now? No, he's not. God is in the still, small voice. You see, God gave, an Elijah, gave Elijah an important lesson at this juncture. And it's something that anyone who's going through depression needs to understand. Just because God is not doing the spectacular doesn't mean he's not there. The Hebrew expression, still small voice, literally means a voice of low whispers, a sound of gentle stillness. So God is a God of wonders, yes, but God is also a God of whispers. God is quietly going about his work. We need to remember that God is always at work in our life, even when we don't sense it. God is gently getting Elijah refocused because he needs a spiritual reorientation. He is focused exclusively on himself. And God wants to lift his vision up to see him because in God, we have love. In God, we have power. In, in God, we have our strength. I mean, it's amazing who God is and what he brings to us. So we're reminded that it's not all about us. The fourth principle is this. This is how 
God leads um, Elijah in his depression. We recommit your life to his purpose. This is important because when you're depressed, that's not the time to give up or quit because quitting will only aggravate, even perpetuate the spiral of depression. What you need is to let God give you a new direction. Uh, You don't need to stop working altogether, but you may need to shift the load. You may need to delegate some responsibilities. You may need to try some new things. But quitting meaningful work only guarantees not only that you'll sink into your problem, but you'll have a lot more time to obsess about them. In verse 13, God asked Elijah a very important question. He says, then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I've always been fascinated by the questions that God asked in the Bible, because first and foremost, an omniscient being, a God who knows everything, never asks a question for information. It's not that God doesn't know the answer to this question. So why is he asking Elijah, what are you doing here? Because he wants Elijah to think about, is this where you really want to be? You see, it was an open invitation to open up and talk about what's going on inside. Elijah needed to open up and vent his frustration. And then God listened as Elijah poured out his feelings of anger, bitterness, and self-pity. Tears are another great means of release. Never lose your ability to cry. Someone has said the answer to all our emotional problems is salt water, sweat, tears, or the ocean. I think there's a measure of truth to that. The final principle is this, reach out to a friend. You see, God allowed Elijah to sit in the dark cave and in self-pity for just so long that he told him to get up and get busy again because there was a new king in Israel and a new prophet to be anointed. Elijah needed the tonic of a new task. The best way to get out of this feeling of feeling sorry for yourself is to get compassionate towards someone else. Many of you recognize the name of the great Carl Menninger, Dr. Carl Menninger. He's a famed psychiatrist. He was once asked by a reporter, suppose you knew you were headed for a nervous breakdown, what should you do? Now, most people assume that Menninger would say, go to see a psychiatrist, because that's what he was. But that's not what he said at all. Instead, he said, go straight to the front door, turn the knob, cross the tracks, and find someone who needs you. In other words, don't sit around in isolation. Don't get all wrapped up in yourself. Don't have a pity party for too long. Get up and get back into life. In helping others, we help ourselves. So the Bible says, so Elijah went from there and he found Elisha. What God did is gave Elijah someone who would be a friend. He gave him Elisha. And from that point on, they became fellow workers and friends. God gave Elijah someone to lean on. You see, Elijah had come to believe he was all alone. Of course, God told him, you're not alone. There's 7,000 others who've never bowed the knee. But there is a sense in which he was alone, wasn't there? Because he was self-isolating. He had drawn into the cocoon of himself, and he had withdrawn from all the circumstances, and he'd withdrawn from community. And God's prescription to depression was community. You need a friend. You need someone, we call him God with skin on, right? Someone who can hear you, someone who can be with you, someone you can lean on. We all need that. Now, let me just mention something that I think maybe we don't talk about enough, and that's suicide. Some of you have had family members commit suicide. Some people will have funerals and suicide will never be mentioned. There's such, there's such stigma and misunderstanding around it. It's sad. It's unfortunate. I, I think we make the final moments of someone's life far too important. Our life is not like a game of high-stakes poker where how we play our last hand is, is how we land. Not at all. 
we are put in the hands of a gracious God, a gracious God who understands our weakness and our frailties, a God who understands that someone who commits suicide is not in their, using their best thinking, is not in their best mind. He's a God who knows how broken we are as people. He's a God of grace. But they, it's been said that suicide psychology can be charted on a triangle with three corners. And the three corners are all alone, inactive, and indulging in self-pity. It's interesting, the psychologist George Crane said, if you can change any one of the three, you can prevent most suicides. And the first time I read that, I thought immediately of Elijah's story, because this is what God does for Elijah. He gives him something to do. That's the answer to inactivity. He said, I'm not through with you yet. There's an important task ahead. Then he gave him something to look forward to. This is the answer to self-pity. He says, you're to appoint a successor. And then finally, he gave Elijah someone to love. This was the answer to being all alone. And it reminds me that most of the answers in life come in the form of people, not words. You know, I can tell you this from the heart. When I was going through my worst time, the one thing I'm grateful for is I have a community that I never walked away from, and they never walked away from me either. You need people. You need people who are with you through thick and thin. We're living in challenging times. Some of you are down. Some of you are depressed. Some of you are grieving some pretty serious losses. Some of you find yourself just kind of in a brownout. You're just not enjoying much of life. You find yourself going through the motions, but it just doesn't feel real anymore. And what you need is, you know, just a real strong investment from God in your life about these things. Number one, talk to him. Bring it to him. Take care of yourself. But as you take care of yourself, make sure that the things you're doing that are good for you are really good for you, that really benefits you, that build into your life, that make you stronger, more able, more capable of facing what lies ahead. Don't do life without community. Yeah, we may not be able to be physically in the same location, but there are all kinds of ways to connect. On Sunday nights, I'm with my group every weekend because we have the internet. We can see each other, we can talk, we pray for each other. You don't have to be without friends in a time like this. You need your friends now more than ever. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together? Father, I thank you so much that even as we ask, where are you in all of this? That God, we can see you in all of this, all this that's going on in our heart, all the confusion, the anger, the depression, the bitterness, the self-pity, Whatever it may be, God, you know how we're made. You know what makes us. You know, God, how we struggle. You know the things, God, that we are going through in life. And Lord, your response to us, like your response to Elijah, is to meet us with what we're needing. You, you, you seem to reserve your best blessings for the time we're struggling most. And even though you may not be doing something spectacular in the moment, God, if we listen closely, that still small voice is there, that gentle whisper that quiet nudging that lets us know that we matter to you, that, Lord, what we feel matters to you, that we can pour out everything in our heart because you know it all, you care about it all, and you want to enter into it all as we open that door to you. So thank you, God, for your presence here with us today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So glad you joined us again for this weekend's message. Please stick around. We've got time of discussion afterwards where you can learn how to better apply it. 
Have a truly blessed day and a blessed week. Wow, what an awesome message from Pastor Keith. I want to thank you guys for being with me. This is our community group time, and so I'd also want to remind everybody watching online that we'd love to hear from you in the comments below. Uh, I also want to remind everybody that just because we're pastors doesn't mean that we don't have some serious struggles. And so a lot of the people that you see that as part of this church or in leadership uh, either do struggle with depression or have struggled with depression or know somebody they love that struggles with depression. Just because one person's depression doesn't look exactly like somebody else's doesn't mean it's not the same thing. And so as we kick off our discussion today, I just wanted to uh, bring up this idea that depression often causes us to be in this bubble where all we can see is ourself and either our own problems or our own issues or our own pain that we don't see outside of us. And so I wanted to ask you guys, uh, how do you recognize you're in a bubble and how do you break out of that bubble once you realize it? Um, so for me, I know that depression is an issue that I always, it's a daily work for me. And the moment that I realized that I am in a bad place is because I'm becoming almost like abusive to myself, where I'm negative, when I put myself down. Um, and that's when I realized that I just have to snap out of that and realize, okay, this I'm not in the right place. And then I just got to get myself back into the groove of things and the truth of what God truly calls us to be and who we are in Christ. And that's really the point that helps me realize that this is something I got to work with. And, and then th that kind of just helps me to realize um, where, how I get out of that crazy bubble. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I, um, I get really secluded, like I seclude myself and I just really back off from everyone like messaging, um, texting, calling. I'm just kind of like fall off the face of the earth. And that's when I noticed that I'm, you know, in a funk because um, I, I do struggle with depression. And in like Yachty, it is kind of like a daily thing. It's not like, oh, this week I'm good. You know, next week I'm not. It's just like literally day after day um, I wake up. And I'm like, you know, it's going to be a good day. And I wake up some other days. I'm just like, ah, today's going to suck. Um, and it's unfortunate. I really I really don't like that. But um, that seclusion and a little bit of that, you know, self-neglect. Um, I see a lot of it. I just don't feel motivated to do anything for myself uh, or um, anyone else, you know, do my job or whatever aspect of it. You know, it's interesting you said isolating yourself because isolation is uh, the first response to pain. That if you hurt something, you pull it away and you want to isolate it. And if you yourself are hurting, a lot of times you want to isolate uh, from whatever it is that's causing your pain. When actuality confronting it or even the community that you're isolating from could be the very answer to it. Um, and you know, it often reminds me that uh, as Pastor Keith reminded us, one of the answers to depression is this simple concept of rest. Yeah. And especially in today's culture, it seems like we worship the cult of being busy and that it's almost a badge of honor to say that you're really busy or you don't have time for something. So in, in an age where being restful is very looked down upon. How do you take rest and how do you wish you uh, were better at taking rest? Um, I like being busy because I like to work, right? And I truly all about working. Um, God worked for six days, rested on the seventh day. 
the problem that I see people making, or even sometimes where I used to catch myself, was that I worked myself to hide my feelings, to hide my pain, to face the truth. That's the problem. So a lot of the times we always have to take time to definitely rest because I think that brings a sense of a moment to evaluate yourself. Where are you? Like, what are you doing? Just like what God asked, where are you? And that's the same thing you ask yourself. Where are you at this point? And you have to kind of just think through it and say, okay, what am I hiding? What's the root of the problem? And rest gives you such an insight where you actually can get in tune with God, but also hear what he has to say for you. Yeah. For me, like working a lot, um, is like telling myself I'm okay because I just kind of lie to myself. I'm like working, working, working. I just kind of tell everyone else, Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm kicking butt and everything that I'm doing. Um, and then I tell myself that, but truly deep down, I'm just like, I'm not sleeping. And that's one thing that I really struggle with is sleep. I can't sleep sometimes. Uh, I've been in this recent, just like past month, um, just not being able to sleep at all. I'm about to be prescribed some, um, um, some sleeping medication just because, uh, it, it's just horrible. And then I wake up, you know, not feeling rested at all. And I'm like, okay, well, I gotta get my stuff done. Uh, and then I wake up a little later and then I just work until, you know, one or two in the morning. I'm like, okay, well time to try to go to sleep now. Um, and so rest is so important because if you don't sleep, man, you can't work. You can't, your, your brain just doesn't work well. I mean, how many times have I mean, y'all and then people online like driven and they have like those little micro naps, those micro, whatever it's called, micro naps, right? Micro. <laughs> I like, have no clue what you're when talking about. You're driving, you're driving and then you close your eyes for a second and then you Whoa. open your eyes oh, yeah. and then you're like halfway on the shoulder and you're on the far left lane. Oh. So that's what it feels like for me every day. <laughs> so I'm tired, but I don't have sleep and I'm just like micro napping daily. Um, and yeah, that's why rest and sleep is so important. I kind of went on a side tangent thing, but it's so important to sleep yeah. and to rest. Yeah. And I'd also remind everyone that um, a lot of times rest can also be a season. Yeah. That a lot of times that you don't need to feel guilty if your schedule isn't booked or if you actually have time to yourself for whatever reason. Uh, I was even talking to a friend who's just entered the season where he gets a lot more rest than he's ever had before. And he said, you know, sometimes I don't even really know what to do with all the time that I have. Um, but I'm grateful that I get the time to figure it out. And uh, it reminds me of the next part, which is that oftentimes depressions, uh, worst enemy is community. And when we're around people, they help us break out of that bubble that we can see ourselves in. And so I'd love to ask you guys, when it comes to your community, number one, what does it look like for you? And two, how would you help encourage somebody that doesn't have community? So that is struggling with depression. How would you encourage them to find that? Wow. Um, let me just share a little bit about my testimony real quick, guys, because it's definitely a process. So I was a, I'm a, I've been molested as a child for many years. And just coming out of that, it put so many scars in me and uh, anxiety, depression, suicide, massive problem. And when it breaks down your self-esteem, your confidence, your worth, 
that's something that I battled for many, many years. And I was angry at a God that I didn't know because I didn't grow up knowing Jesus or knowing, you know, this amazing God or knowing his agape love. But I have to say that along the way, even when I least expected it, God brought great people to help us during those process. Friends that were able to open up and share some of their stories and their struggles that really shine some light where I realized I'm not alone. This didn't just happen to me. This is a real problem and a trauma that really hurt me and, and made me crazy in the head. But then I realized that, okay, I need healing. It's, I need help. I need to talk to somebody. And that's what community brings to me. That's what friendship, true friends and therapy and everything that's else, good. having great conversations to realize that, hey, there's still healing. There's still hope. Suicide doesn't have control. Depression does not have control. And that's something that I definitely push towards with people like get yourself in a great community. Find yourself a great friend. Like along the way, I have plenty of best friends and great friends and good people that have made some sort of impact in my life. But I was never able to do that alone. Never. Till this day, I can't do life alone. And it's through Christ that really helps me realize the people that he brings into my life, even if it's for a small season, they made a big impact. And that what, that's what I think really helped me through my depression. Um, for me, like, uh, I'm like a natural like, extrovert. Um, but whenever it comes to, like personal issues like that, I never reached out and I never felt the need to like ask for help for anything. And so for like, the longest time, I never realized I had, I struggled with anxiety or depression, um, until God really showed up and, uh, went to, um, this, this doctor in Denton, um, as where I went to college and at the time. And, um, the only doctor in there that was a Christian, you know, or anything. Cause I thought I had like stomach ulcers. I was throwing up all the time. And I was just like, I don't know what's going on. And then the only doctor that was a Christian in there, um, you know, came and talked to me and, and just the way that we talked to each other, we just kind of knew we we're hinting at, cause he can't, you know, talk openly about his religion unless, um, he's asked about it, I guess. I don't know what the HIPAA rules are on that, but, um, we're just kind of hinting at it. And then he kind of told me a story about Paul. And then he also told me a story about Elijah whenever Pastor Keith brought it up. And that was just opened my eyes so much more. And then I kind of went out of a season of being well, cause he diagnosed me with, you know, depression and anxiety. I was like, okay, and I got medicated on that. Then I abused some of the medications and then it took some really good friends of mine to recognize, um, that I had an issue. Um, and that I needed help, more help than that. But a lot of times with community and stuff too, um, we ourselves need to realize that there is an issue. You know, uh, someone can tell us every day and night that, you know, you there's something going on. But until we realize that there is something going on, that's when the change actually happens. You know, when you start actually reaching out to the people that you love and that help you, when you actually um, talk to the pastors uh, you know, at the church that you're a part of or on staff on, you know. Um, and that's when it truly matters. Community matters because the more you want to help yourself, the more the community, um, helps you out. You know, the more that you put in, the more you get out. Um, and that's why I love community and, you know, the community groups I'm a part of and just best friends that not necessarily community groups, but we just do life together. And that's what the most important part about it is. Yeah. 
Hey, thanks for sharing that. Those are some great points. And I just want to remind everybody watching that community doesn't happen overnight. And that's why depression and community battle so hard is because depression wants to keep you isolated, but community can be one of the strongest answers. And I know in our small group, uh, depression is something that a lot of people bring up quite often and they're allowed to talk about in the open and we're allowed to support and pray through them and, and live that same pain alongside them. But it, it, it's something that takes time. And so as people start looking for community groups, which by the way, you can find a map of all the community groups over the city. Um, as you start finding them, promise yourself that you're going to stick with it. Promise yourself that you're, you're going to work through some of those uncomfortable moments so that you can have those friends like you have, or those people that love you dearly and are willing to help you see things about yourself you don't see. Um, cause I know that I need it. <laughs> yeah. If I don't have people remind me of the things that I don't see about myself, I'm, I'm pretty lost. I just want to thank you guys for being here. Thanks for having us. Yep. Thanks for having me. Bye.